This morning we have a young man from Florida, Randy Severs. He's going to speak to us from the book of Hebrews. And your heart, I'm sure, is going to be blessed. Randy and I have been friends for many, many years. We've had many, many discussions, arguments. Most of them he won. <laughs> but we love him and we're grateful for the privilege of having him with us at this conference. Pardon? First of all, I want to thank John for redefining young. I was visiting with Fred Zaspel one day, and after I left that evening, one of his children said to him, Daddy, who was that old man with the beard? It's been a great joy for me to be here these days. One of the things that has encouraged me greatly is to see how over the years that I've been speaking at the conference, our numbers have swelled. It's always encouraging to see people interested in the exposition of the Word of God. And um, I trust that as the days and years go by that the conference will continue to grow and the good Word will be spread that there are people here who are interested in knowing what God has said. One of the things that I've always appreciated about the Bunyan Conference is that uh, the Bunyan Conference has been a place where we could get together and disagree with each other and do so without falling out with each other. I've always appreciated the spirit of the Bunyan Conference. Uh, there are some people that have great difficulty doing that. And um, one of the things that I think we ought not to tolerate at, at the Bunyan Conference is heretics. I honestly believe that. And a heretic really is one not who's so much whose doctrine is not what it ought to be as it is one who likes to cause divisions among the brethren. And um, we, we need to be very, very careful about what we do when we go back to our tents at night. It was for murmuring that God judged his people Israel and these things happened to them for our benefit so that we might not fall just as they fell. Um, one of the things that has been very helpful here at the conference is that we have been able to go to people with whom we disagreed and act like men and confront them face to face about things like that. And we have done that in love and um, have been well received and I trust that that tradition is going to continue here at the conference. And I have appreciated the openness and the kindness and the graciousness of those who have been speaking and others. I, I especially want to say how much I appreciate uh, the two elder statesmen who are with us, Dr. Johnson and, and uh, Mr. Riesinger. The scripture says, the hoary head is a crown of glory if it be found in the way of righteousness. I sat down with a friend of mine at dinner a few weeks ago and uh, he and I happened to be on, the, on different sides of the fence on several theological issues. And we've been through, both of us have been through some rather rough water over the years and as we sat down to pray together and to give thanks to God for his blessings, he said to me, Randy, isn't it good 
that after all the Lord has brought us through, we still want to bow our heads and thank Him for the way He's led us. And I think of a man like Dr. Johnson and, and John Riesinger, both of whom, who have, whom, of whom have shown great, great courage. Uh, it's not an easy thing, in spite of the fact that you know you're going to lose your friends and your position and all the rest of it, to take hard stands for what you believe the Word of God has to say. That is not an easy thing. And yet both of these men and many others here like them have been willing to do that. And, uh, and yet over the years they have remained sweet and kind and gracious and I, I want both of them to know how much I appreciate that. Uh, they've been a, a godly example for us who are following in their steps. Now finally before we get started, there were several people that mentioned to me last year that they didn't feel that I had covered my subject but had gotten interested in preaching and uh, didn't finish. So I've, I've tried to remedy that. The first thing that I did was gave a very, very ambiguous title when they first asked me what I wanted to speak on. Redemptive History in Hebrews. You can go almost anywhere with that. <laughs> and then, to confuse you even more, we changed the title in the program that you now have to Atonement in Hebrews. Consequently, none of you know what I'm going to be speaking on this morning, so you're not going to know whether I cover the subject or not. <laughs> and you need to know that that is by design. It's no accident. I would like for you to turn in your Bibles this morning as a starting point to Hebrews, the second chapter. In chapter 1 of Hebrews... This writer has set forth at the very outset the outline that he wants to consider throughout the book. And that, that outline is simply that the same God who at various times and in various manners spoke in times past under the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken unto us in one who is as to his nature son. It is not a different revelation or, or different God who has revealed himself in these two testaments and in these two covenants. It is the same God. He speaks with one voice. And the message is one. It is Jesus Christ, the Son. I love that passage where Jesus walked with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And as he walked with them and they were sad, he began to upbraid them and then to encourage them by preaching to them the word of God. And the scripture tells us he began with Moses and all the prophets and expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. One of, the, one of the big lessons we need to learn if we're going to understand the scriptures is that Christ is the message of the scriptures. If, if a doctrine is not Christocentric in nature, that is, if it is, does not have Christ as its center, then we better be suspect of it. Because Christ is in reality the central theme of both testaments. And that God who spoke to us during the Old Covenant period in, through, through many different ways, many prophets and so forth, has in these last days spoken unto us in His Son. And that revelation that He has now given us is full and absolutely and completely adequate for us as far as the Christian life is concerned. He then describes that Son to us as one whom He has appointed as heir of all things and through whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His image or brightness of his glory the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power and by the way the, the picture here is not that of Atlas holding the world on his shoulders but it, it is that of 
the Lord Jesus bearing all things along to completion and to their final end. And then he says, when he had by himself, that is by the sacrifice of himself, purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. He then shows us that the place of angels is before the throne, for Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is worthy to be enthroned. He is enthroned as the Son. As the, as the psalmist says in Psalm 2, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. And here he tells us that Jesus Christ has now been enthroned as the Anointed One. He has been anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows. And so all the angels of God are to worship him. Those who were the very mediators and, and through whom the old covenant came are now bowing before the throne of Jesus Christ, the new lawgiver, the second Moses. And therefore, the writer says in chapter 2, therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest we drift away from them. It always amazes me that people want to accuse those who are believers in new covenant theology of not being concerned with godly living. And yet the scripture says that we ought, and he's talking about those who have come to understand the blessings of the new covenant, we ought to give the more earnest heed. More earnest heed than whom? Than those under the old covenant. That's very clear. For he says, if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. In other words, if that covenant required holiness, an absolute and intricate, uh, in absolute and intricate detail, and those who were under that covenant could not escape, how shall we escape who have received a far greater revelation from the Lord Jesus himself? Amen. Wow. Don't tell me I don't have to do this, I don't have to do that because I'm not under the law anymore. Oh, the gospel requires far more. We, say, we just sang, and I'm paraphrasing, run, do, and live. The law demands. It gives me neither feet nor hands. A better word the gospel brings, it bids me what? Fly. fly. Don't just run, do, and live. It bids me fly. That's harder. That's higher. But you know what? It... It lends me wings. There's the difference. You see, we all have the same bottom line. We're not interested in living ungodly lives and, and finding an excuse for it. Well, I'm not under the Ten Commandments, so I can do what I please. No. No, that's far from our minds. If, in fact, that is your intention, it is likely that you've never been born again by the grace of God. The child of God is the person who says, I want to be as godly and as holy as it's possible for a redeemed sinner to be. And so we all have the same bottom line. We're not interested in, 
any less in holiness than are those who contend that the Mosaic law is our standard of sanctification. But the question is, can the law enable us to meet its standard? There's the question. And the answer is, no, it can't. That's why the apostle says in Romans chapter 8, for what the law could not do, because it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirements of the law might be met in us, fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. That is, we are not those who belong to the old creation and the old covenant. Instead, we are those who now belong to the new creation and are under the, under the new covenant. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? There are people around our area that say, well, I don't have to come to church anymore because I'm not under the law but under grace. I didn't know the law told you you had to go to church. <laughs> Did you? But I know this. I know this. If you love God and you love His people, you're going to be there when the Word of God is preached. My mama never made me, you can tell I'm from the South, mama made me. My mama ne never made me come to the table when she had a good meal there. She never had to say, now look Randy, we're going to have to make up some rules. When I fix a good meal, you're going to have to be there at the table. I was usually there waiting at the table before she got there. Let me tell you something. If you, if you love Jesus Christ, if you love his people, if you love his word, no one's going to have to beg you to be there when God's word is preached and when God's, God's people get together. Now in verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 2, the, the writer begins to talk about the age to come. The New English Bible has an interesting rendering here. It is this, the age to come, which is our theme. It is that messianic age, says the writer, about which we are talking. And this is that which is characteristic of that messianic age. This is an age in, in which God has not put the subjection of things, um, or put things in subjection under angels, but instead, this is that age in which he has put all things under the subjection of man in the new creation. And he, and he cites from a certain place, verse 6, in that certain place we know to be Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? The old King James says that you visit him. But as we know that means more than just to drop by for a social call. It, it means that, that you come to his aid, that you assist him, that you, you, you give him what he needs. What is man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower, or for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For the, in that he hath put all things in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was for a little time made lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. 
for it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. What an expression of our Lord's humanity. I was cast upon thee from my mother's womb, the psalmist says in Psalm 22. And our Lord Jesus, from the very time he was uh, brought forth in the manger, to the time that he ascended up on high, he was subject to his father. Indeed, he was subject to his parents here on earth. He was subject to his earthly parents. Think of that. The one who is the great lawgiver, being, becoming obedient, and obedient even to the point of death. I will put my trust in him. The Lord Jesus lived his life in complete trust in his heavenly father. Amazing, is it not, that we, his people, think we can get, it, get along by ourselves at times. It is at that point that we find ourselves in deep spiritual trouble. I heard a very well-known evangelist some time ago say that when we really mature in the Christian faith, we come to the place that we no longer need to trust God like we did when we were first converted. We now are able, because of our spiritual strength, to make it on our own. The precise opposite of, of that, of course, is true. Uh, when we rear our children, it is our intention that they be independent of us. As Bill Cosby says, we want to get them out of the house. But not so our Heavenly Father. The more He works in our hearts to sanctify us by His grace, the more dependent we are to become on Him. The more we are to recognize that without Him, we can do nothing. And in, in, in that kind of dependence, we become more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ, who was cast upon the, the, the divine power of God from His mother's womb and said, I will put my trust in Him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children are, 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 are partakers of flesh and blood, that is, inasmuch as the children who have been given to him have a human nature, he himself likewise shared in the same. Philip Hughes in his commentary on Hebrews says this was not simulation, rather assimilation. He did not simply become like us or similar to us, he became one with our nature, yet without sin. His nature was just as much a real human nature, in fact more so, than is ours. For his was not spoiled by sin, and ours is. Sin never gives to us, it always detracts from us. And he did not have anything at all in his nature to detract from his, his holy character. Why did he become man? That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to, to bondage. For indeed he does not give to angels 
aid, but he does give to the seed of Abraham this kind of aid. He does not take hold of angels. He does not come in the nature of angels. Instead, he comes in our nature that he might die for us, that he might sympathize with us, that he might suffer for us. Verse 17, therefore, in all things, he had to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those also who are tempted. Later on, the writer says, we do not have the kind of high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our weaknesses. But we have one who was in all points, tested like as we are, yet without sin. There's nothing that you are feeling here this morning that our Lord Jesus did not feel. Apart from your sin, sinful feelings, of course, he didn't feel that. But in terms of your trials and your temptations and all of that, nothing you, you're going through that he doesn't feel with you. He knows where you live. He's not cold and austere, unapproachable. He is, he is the kind of Savior that little children felt, felt comfortable coming to. Yeah. When he preached the gospel, the common people heard him gladly. I like that. I appreciate, again, I appreciate men like uh, Dr. Johnson who are able to take profound truths and speak them in such a way that some of us can understand what he's talking about. That's... that's uh, it's amazing in reality. Um, it's awfully difficult, I'm, I'm sure, for a man who is a scholar like that to, to talk in language that we can understand. But I appreciate the fact that he does that. We ought to be, we ought to be just like that. I, I, I read a, a while back about a man who had heart trouble and uh, was not able to read. He was an Ill illiterate man, could not read the instructions on the bottle as to how to get the childproof cap off the top of the bottle and as a consequence died with a heart attack. And I thought to myself, you know, there are some times that we as preachers tend to put our messages in childproof bottles and uh, there are people there that can't understand the instructions and some of them are going to perish because they couldn't understand how to get to the remedy. And I really appreciate the fact that, that we have men like that who, who are able to take these truths and put them down so that we can understand them. Our Lord Jesus was a man like that. My, what a Savior. My, what a Savior. I can't think of anything more delightful than the privilege of exalting His holy name. Can you? Not that His name needs exaltation, for it is exalted above measure already. But what a glory it is just to point to that. <laughs> That's what exalting His name is all about. That's what exalting our God is all about, isn't it? It isn't that we give him glory he didn't have before. It is simply that we call attention to the glory that he has manifested to us. And what a privilege. What a privilege. Since I was supposed to talk about redemptive history, perhaps I ought to say something about it. When we talk about redemptive history, we're simply talking about God's dealings with his people in real time-space history, 
and his manifestation of his glory to his people through his redemptive work during that period. There are certain characteristics of redemptive history that we need to pay attention to. Redemptive history is Christocentric, I think, in a way that no other um, system really is or no other approach really is. In that other, other ways of looking at the scriptures tend to, especially here in our country, I think this is so, they, they tend to, to talk about what God is doing in me. What God has revealed to me. This is what I think the passage means. And everything is sort of me-oriented. And there is that sense in which, which we can say with the Apostle Paul, He loved me and gave Himself for me. And I thank God that we can do that. But let me tell you something. The primary focus of Scripture is not on what God is doing in me or in my church, or in my family, the primary focus of Scripture is on what God has accomplished in Christ. And before we ever have any of the blessings of the cross applied to us, those very blessings have already been applied to our Lord Jesus Christ Himself. The victories that He accomplished on Calvary were applied to Him at His resurrection, and His ascension, His enthronement. All of those are ours because we are in Him to whom they have already been applied. When we talk about redemptive history, we are talking about a focus that, that looks at Jesus Christ as the one in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We look at, at Him in, in whom all the blessings of God in heavenly places are treasured up for us who are in Him. And we see that when Jesus Christ went to the cross... The focus was not on his people below the cross. The focus was on him. And so we focus in our studies of the scriptures primarily not on the order of salvation and its, its application and so forth, but instead we focus rather on the history of salvation and we see what God has been doing, what he's been up to. We see that set forth in the Old Testament scriptures as we have already seen in many, many different ways. We see it in types and shadows. We see it in, in the prophets. We see it in dreams sometimes. And um, these are varied. They are scattered. No one in the Old Covenant period had the kind of clear revelation of the purposes of God that we have today in Christ. No one. There were some who saw more than others. Some of you who were here in earlier days have heard the illustration that I like to use about the jigsaw puzzle. I, I think it's a fairly decent illustration, so I'm going to use it again. If you've heard it, just forget it and don't worry about it. But just suppose that uh, we had a jigsaw puzzle club. Any of you uh, here jigsaw puzzle enthusiast? You do that? Okay, good. Suppose you had a club. And the, the members of your club were scattered all over the United States. Maybe you got together with some of these fellows from Arizona and you, you, they, they joined your club. And what you decided to do was that you were going to get a, a huge puzzle. And incidentally, all, all the colors were somewhat similar, you know, so that makes it all, all the more easy to put together. <laughs> and what you decided to do is you're going to give a handful of pieces to every member of the club. And you have quite a number of members. And these 
people are not going to be corresponding with each other over a period of time. They're simply going to try to make sense of this puzzle by putting their pieces together. Now some of them have a bigger handful of pieces than others. Some of them have a, maybe three or four pieces, others have a hundred pieces. Isaiah has a hundred pieces, for instance. Okay. Now suppose none of you had yet seen the picture on the box. What does that do to your effort? It's going to severely hamper it, is it not? Now, I liken that to the, the Old Covenant Revelation and the New Covenant, New Covenant Revelation. We're not saying that there are not people during the Old Covenant period who had understanding of what God was going to do. They did have that understanding, but they did not have that kind of understanding that the least who is in the kingdom of God understands, you see. Even John the Baptist, the greatest of the Old Covenant prophets, the greatest prophet born of woman, according to our Lord Jesus Christ, is not as far advanced in his understanding as the least one of us today who understands the New Covenant Revelation. Now you see what was happening in the, in the situation that uh, is being confronted here in Hebrews was there were people who had the, had the picture on the box they had the full revelation. They said, well, that's what it's supposed to look like. And what they were wanting to do is go back and play with their little pieces of the puzzle. And the writer's saying, look, there's no sense in doing that. You don't need to go back there. You have the fulfillment of all of that. You see, my wife was with me at the conference last year, and she sends her regrets for not being able to be here this year. Uh, if she were here, it would be absolutely foolish of me to pull out a picture from my wallet and say to you, here's a picture of my wife. Would it not? I started to do that one time, and to my chagrin, I looked in my wallet and didn't have a picture of my wife. <laughs> and she, she found out about it. And I was in trouble. You don't need the picture. When you have the substance. Now listen, I still carry a picture of my wife in my wallet. I better. I better. And I don't even do that because I know she's going to beat me if I don't. I do that because I love her. And you know what? I still read the Old Testament scriptures. And it's not because someone says, look, you've got to go back and read that. That's important stuff. But you know, I do that because there's a picture of my Savior back there. And I like to go back and look at it. Don't you? But I'd far rather deal with New Testament, New Covenant revelation. Because I can only understand what's back there. By understanding what's over here. But I can't understand what's over here in the New Testament. In reality. Unless I really understand what's back there. You try to understand the book of Hebrews without understanding that. You're in deep trouble. You really are. You have to have both together. Very important. Second thing about, about um, our, the redemptive history approach. Is that it is eschatological in its nature. In other words... 
it, it, it sees that the last times have come. There has been a radical shift, a shift that took place at Calvary and at the resurrection. And incidentally, when we talk about the, the crucifixion or the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, we're not simply talking about his cross work. We're talking about the whole, the whole package, the cross, the tomb, the resurrection, the ascension, the, the enthronement. It's all taken together. And it was at the resurrection of our Lord Jesus that everything changed. We talked two or three years ago about the veil of the temple that was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Boy, that was significant. Don't miss the significance of that. As long as that veil hung in place, the significance was the way into the holiest of all has not yet been shown, has not yet been made manifest. But when Jesus died on the cross, everything changed. He opened up the way into the holiest of all for us, his brethren. Aren't you glad he did? Hallelujah. It's enough to make a Presbyterian shout. <laughs> Thirdly, and this is the point, this is the point that is extremely important this morning. In the text we're going to be looking at a little later. And that is that there is a corporate solidarity when God, between, between the first Adam and the last Adam and their respective creations. If we miss that, then we're going to miss a large part of the message of the New Testament Scriptures. When God deals with us, He deals with us representatively. He either deals with us in the first Adam we either stand or fall in him, or he deals with us in the last Adam. And someone says, well, that's not fair. Well, number one, who said it has to be fair? Who, who are you to make up the rules of fair? That's basically what Paul says in Romans chapter 9, isn't it? Someone says, well, it's not fair for God to choose some and pass over others. And Paul says, who says God has to be fair according to your definition of fairness? God himself defines fairness. Well, we need to learn that. I'm not going to tell you to let God be God, as one brother said. I heard a fellow say, he's going to be God whether you let him be or not. <laughs> but you see, we don't, have to, we don't have to call on God, or we don't have to say, well, God's not fair. God is sovereign. We don't appreciate that here with our democracy or our republic. We don't appreciate that. We think we all have a vote. We need to understand sovereignty. We, we need to understand, do not I have a right to do what I will with my own? And in our society, the answer is no. I don't have a right to do what I will my, will my own. I can do what the government tells me I can do. I better be careful. They'll, they'll be surrounding the place. Get, we need to get rid of that stash of guns in the basement. Man. Huh? Get some. <laughs> No, the principle, biblical principles, a man has a right to do what he will with his own. 
And the reason God can do what He will with us is because we are His. He made us. And we bow below, but beneath His sovereignty. So it's, you know, it's not fair for God to make Adam as my representative. Well, God can do what He wants, and He did. Secondly, we do it all the time. We had the final four competition a couple weeks back. And there were five guys out there representing their schools. And when they won, everybody in the school said what? We won. And when they lost, everybody in the school said they lost. <laughs> That's the way it works. But you see, it doesn't, it doesn't really work that way. If they win, we win. If they lose, we lose. And so it is with Adam. If he stands, we stand. And by the way, the, the message of Scripture is not Adam failed to gain something in the garden. No, the message of Scripture is Adam lost something in the garden. There's a big difference. But when Adam fell, I fell in him. I did not reach forth my grimy little paw and take the forbidden fruit myself. I wasn't actually there, but I was there in my representative. And when he fell, I fell. And God accounts his fall to be my fall. And he has imparted Adam's nature to me so that I act just like my father acted. And I act just like my father before him acted. And we can trace that bitter stream all the way back to Adam. But we can't say it's Adam's fault because we have cast our vote with him. We have said, Adam, you were right. We believe that God ought to be torn from his throne and trampled underfoot. We believe that we ought to sit on the throne in his place. We don't want to share God's throne with him. We don't want God as our co-pilot. Shoot, I'm not even the co-pilot in reality. We don't want to share it with him. We want to kick God out of the plane and take the, the, the stick ourselves. That's our nature when we're born. And we say, Adam, you were right in taking the fruit. You were right in rebelling against God. We're with you, Adam. And so we are guilty of an aggravated condemnation. That's not the only representative. Just as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, so that death passed through the race, and we see evidence of it all around us. In that same way, Jesus Christ came as our representative and by his one act of obedience has justified all. He did not make them justifiable. He justified all. And I'm not preaching universalism or hypothetical universalism. I'm telling you that Jesus Christ justified every single one who belonged to his creation. That's the key. Just as Adam condemned everyone in his creation, the old creation, so the Lord Jesus has justified everyone in the new creation. 
as in Adam all die? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Does the all in the first part mean the same thing as the all in the second part? No. Just as in Adam all in him die, even so in Christ all in him will be made alive. And we see that in the next verse which says Christ the firstfruits and afterward what? They that are Christ at his coming. They that are Christ at his coming. Now in the book of Hebrews, and we're going to close with this and then come back to it next hour. I'm glad I didn't nail myself down to a subject. As I see it, there are at least four major themes when it comes to the doctrine of salvation in the epistle to the Hebrews. They are these. Number one, access and bold access into the presence of God. Secondly, perfection, completion, or restoration. Thirdly, rest or inheritance. And finally, fulfillment of covenant promises. Those themes are the themes that the writer pursues when he talks about salvation in this epistle, or in, in this treatise, as it could be. It's interesting that the word justification does not appear in this epistle at all. When the word sanctification is used, it is not used primarily, if ever, of progressive sanctification. Instead, it is used of consecration, setting apart. And so the terminology that is used here is not the same as it is in, in um, some of the other books of the New Testament scriptures. Let's just look quickly at these themes in a, in a few verses and then we'll close for the first hour. Do I quit? What time do I quit? At 10.15? 10 o'clock? 10 o'clock, right? Okay. Almost got away with it. Hebrews 8, uh, Hebrews 10, pardon me. In Hebrews 10 and verse 19, the writer is drawing to a close and summarizing the, what is known as the theological section of this great epistle. I personally don't know how you separate theological from practical. In my view, if it is not practical... It, if it is not practical, it is not theological. And if it is not theological, it is not practical. The two things always go together. God does not give us this, and we're going to talk about this a little bit in the second hour. God does not give us his word to stuff our heads with more knowledge. Most of us walk around with an oversized head anyway and real tiny feet. That's a great problem. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a head full of knowledge, but it better filter down to your heart and then to your feet. But I believe that theology, warmly preached, is always going to affect your walk if you react properly to it. There's no such thing as cold, dead, dry theology if it's preached biblically. And the writer here is giving us theology, but boy, it's practical. Practical theology. Look at it. Verse 19 of, of chapter 10. He's talking here about access. Contrary to the old covenant situation in which there was that 
that um, outer court, and then there was the laver, and then uh, a veil. One went in, entered into the holy place, and then another thick linen, woven linen veil, where the, only the high priest could go, and that only once a year, and that not without blood, which he offered first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. We have boldness. We have access into the presence of God. Wherefore, brethren, having boldness to enter into the holiness by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Aren't you glad we are not kept at a distance this morning? Aren't you glad that God doesn't say stay away? We now have a better hope whereby we do what? We draw near to God. I love it when my children put their arms around me and say, Daddy, I love you. They used to hug me around the leg when they were real short. Daddy, I love you. Boy, that was sweet. My son's 22 years old and he still puts his arms around me and says, Daddy, I love you. Amen. We have a God that we can embrace and we can say, Abba. Abba, Father. We can come boldly into his presence. We don't have to fear that he's going to judge us anymore because he has already judged us in the person of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Fred gave me a couple of lines from a hymn a couple of weeks ago. I want to share it with you. Some of the best stuff I've ever read. It says this, I hear the accuser roar of ills that I have done. I know them well and thousands more. Jehovah findeth none. Though the restless foe accuses sins, recounting like a flood every charge our God refuses, Christ is answered with his blood. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Do you want, you want ability to live the Christian life? Do you want ability to overcome that nagging sinful habit of yours? If we love Christ, we all do. Where do you get it? We go to the throne of grace because it is there that we find timely help to assist us in our walk. We are not without help. We are not without hope as far as the Christian life is concerned. We are not those who get on our knees and must rise frustrated because after all, this God is not happy with us. He does not accept our offering of praise and thanksgiving. We do not, as others, lament our confession because we know our God is faithful and just to accept that confession. And he is just because Christ has answered with his blood. We have boldness of access into the very presence of God. And if you're, if you're struggling with a sin in your life, the best thing to do is to go back and concentrate on the ten words given on Mount Sinai. And that's going to sanctify you. That's going to make you holy. All you have to hear is don't do it. And you'll stop. Why well, would that were so? But it's not. 
You want to see the colossal failure of the law to sanctify people? Look at Israel in the Old Testament. It is not the law of God that brings salvation, nor is it the law of God that brings likeness to Jesus Christ. It is the grace of God that brings salvation that teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live, live righteously and godly in this, holy, in, this, in this now age. So it's practical that we have an access, isn't it? Because we can go there, we can, we say, we can say, my sins, my sins, my Savior, they, say, they take such hold on me that I am not able to look up save only Lord to thee. But as we gaze on him and as we see his glory revealed in the pages of scripture, we are changed into the same image from glory to glory as by the Lord, the Spirit. That's where sanctification comes. That's why the writer here in chapter 3 says, he doesn't say, well, what you need to do is have more of the law. No, he says what you need to do is fix your gaze on Jesus Christ. Look to him. He is the one in whom hope is found. He's the one that will break that chain that you've been struggling with so long. He's the one that will set you free. Quickly, same chapter, verse 14. The theme of perfection is throughout the epistle. And he says here, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. You see, he has come to restore that which has been lost and more than restore it, to confirm it for us. We're going to talk about that in chapter 2 a little bit later. There's the theme of rest or inheritance. Look at chapter 9, verse 15. And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Our Lord Jesus is the new Joshua who leads us into the true land of promise. If Joshua had given them rest, Psalm 95 would not have spoken about another day of rest. But he speaks about that time that we will enter into that rest in Christ. He is our Sabbath. We rest in Him. We have an inheritance in Him. So we have those two figures. We have the land that was a type of our rest. We have the Sabbath that was also a type of our rest. In one sense, the Sabbath looks back to the old, to the, to the first creation and reminds us of what we lost in Adam. Ad, Adam rested with God, not on the seventh day, but every day. The other passage in the Old Testament scriptures talks about redemption from Egypt. You were redeemed out of Egypt, therefore keep the Sabbath. Remember that? Why does it do that? Because that reminds us of another reason. And that is we rest 
We, we have our inheritance in Christ. We have been redeemed from the bondage of the world and of sin in Egypt. We, in our great captain, Jesus Christ, our new Joshua, have entered into the promised land of God's blessings by faith. And then, of course, in, in 1015, we'll just read the verse and we'll quit for this hour. 1015 through 18. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and, I, and, and in their minds will I write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. By the way, I think this is referenced back to the first part of the chapter in which he tells us that when those offerings of the old covenant were offered, there was a remembrance made of sin again every year. It wasn't to take away sins that those offerings were offered by the high priest. It was to remind sinners that there must be a greater sacrifice coming. These sacrifices that were offered last year have to be repeated this year, must be repeated again next year, and so on until the one to whom they pointed is on the scene. And so there is a remembrance of sin made again every year. In contrast to that, the writer says here in verse 18, pardon me, verse 17, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. There is no more remembrance of sins. No more. Jesus Christ in His dying on the cross finished the work. He sat down and He waits expectantly until He puts His almighty foot on the neck of all his foes, showing his absolute triumph over them. Now where remission of these is, there is no longer an offering for sin. Hallelujah. What a Savior. It would be great if we had Dr. D.J. Ward's choir here to sing one of the great songs that I heard there. And it's a beautiful one. And in the end it says, Payment paid, case dismissed. <laughs> Payment paid, case dismissed. Great hymn. If you struggle with assurance and you listened, it should help. There's a little booklet back there, Acquitted in the High Court of Heaven. And that's what Randy was talking about today. I don't know where I heard it, but I heard a fellow illustrate the assurance of justification, the completeness of justification. And he said, a man bought a Rolls Royce in England and he went to France. And while he was in France, it broke down. And he couldn't get anybody to fix it because there was no Rolls Royce dealer. So he cabled the Rolls Royce factory. And that afternoon, a private plane came in with a mechanic and he fixed his car. He couldn't believe he had set service. And he said, I bet I'll pay an arm and a leg for this. And when he got home about a month later, there was no bill. Two months later, no bill. Three months later, no bill. And finally he wrote. And he said, three months ago, I was in France. My Rolls Royce broke down. You flew a man over. I couldn't believe the wonderful service, but you never sent me a bill. And then about a week later, he got a letter from the company said, we have no record of any Rolls Royce ever breaking down. <laughs>
God has no record penally of our sin, is that right? Gone. Case dismissed. I like that this morning. Did you? Did that warm your heart? Oh, my. All right. I think we ought to sing after that. It was so good. Uh, what was that number we were going to sing, Fred? Number 24. Where's Fred? Number 24. After this, you're dismissed for coffee. Don't go too far away. Stand.